I'd like to share with you this evening from Malachi chapter 1. If you'll turn with me there, we'll begin to understand what God desires for us in the matter of worship. And we'll try to relate that to God's mission. In the late 1990s and on into the last decade, a unique phenomenon began to spread across evangelicalism here in the United States. In fact, it it rocked evangelical churches, and its ripples were felt even beyond its borders and all across the world. That phenomenon was what came to be known as the worship wars. Many of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with what happened in many churches across the United States. Whether it was the issue of the the kind of songs that we should sing or or where we should put the lyrics of the songs, whether on on the screen or on the hymnal. What we, should, what we should wear to worship, what we should do in worship. All this became a, a big discussion in which in many churches there began to be fighting amongst one another. There began to be a, a worship war between the people of God. In reality, many testify today that they would come to church not really thinking of worship, but between others and, and, the, and the war that was going on between them. Many of you might have been in churches in the past where this may have happened. Well, imagine with me in in a situation in which there is a a worship war going on within a church, that there are maybe on one side of the church those who are in favor of a a certain style of worship, and on the other side there is the complete opposite extreme, others who are desiring a different form of worship. People at, at odds with each other. But imagine with me, a worship over a war over worship that was not between the people of God, but between the people of God and God Himself. Imagine if, if God would have entered the situation and solved the problem for us, would have said that this is the right way or, or this is the right way. Well, in reality, when we look at Malachi chapter 1, we begin to see that this is certainly a worship war, but it's not like the kind that we saw over the last two decades. It's not between God's people fighting with one another over what worship should be, but it's God Himself coming down to the worship that they had agreed upon and saying that their worship was wrong. Look with me at Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. This is what the Lord says to them regarding their worship. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father... Where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, Is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, 
even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. In this battle between God and His people, we begin to see that things begin to heat up. You see, only 500 years before Christ came, much of Israel was far from Jerusalem. In fact, the Persians had taken them captive, and and they were in the land of Persia, far from where they should be worshipping in the center at Jerusalem. Well, Cyrus the king was gracious through the gracious hand of God, allowing Ezra and about 5,000 other Israelites to return to Jerusalem to restore the worship at the temple. They began to do that, and a few decades later, the Lord sent Nehemiah as a catalyst to, to complete the work that Ezra had begun. But even though Nehemiah had come after Ezra, the people of Israel began to be laxed in the way that they worshipped. And so God, being true to His name, calls His people to a true kind of worship. And for that reason, He sends this prophet Malachi to tell them that authentic worship is what God allows. You see, they'd fall into the temptation, having returned to their own land, having started the temple, that they would not follow the regulations concerning the temple. They would offer blind, lame sacrifices. They would go through ritualistic worship and think that that was enough to cut it with God. But as the Lord also tells us in John chapter 4, that worship is in spirit and truth. Here Malachi tells us the truth upon which right worship is based. Right worship is not simply outward. It's not simply ritualistic. It's not something that we go through. It's a matter of the heart, something that is done in spirit. But it's also something that is in accord with truth that is given to us. Right worship worships according to divine revelation. So let us not be stubborn like the nation of Israel as we go to this passage tonight. Let us bow our hearts and understand the truth upon which we should base our worship. Here Malachi gives us a number of truths upon which we should have as a foundation to actually worship God. God rightly. First of all, he upholds God's regard for his own superiority. And beginning there in verse 6 and on through verse 8, we begin to see three very visible pictures that are to depict God's superiority. And so Malachi depicts these pictures of God's superiority as showing that God has such a high regard for his supremacy that we ought to worship him. If God holds His supremacy high, we should so hold it up in worship. It's amazing to me how often God has to stoop down to man's terms to to describe His greatness. Here we have a people of Israel who who over and over, like us, fall into temptation and, and fall away from God, and yet He brings His prophets down to them. I mean, the very fact that we have before us words, human words given to us in Scripture, is God stooping down to us to tell us how we should follow Him. But even within these words, now we have God coming down to us and explaining us the reason why we should worship Him. God should be worshipped. Everyone upon earth should worship God. But here He begins to tell them the reasons why they should worship Him. 
And so he begins to describe a number of, of these pictures that are to show his superiority. Beginning in verse 6, he talks about his superiority as a father. He says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? It was a well-known truth to these Israelites and to us in the fifth commandment that children were to honor their father and their mother. I have a four-and-a-half-month-old son now, and I try to tell him even now that you are to honor your father and the mother. I try to tell him, I'm the boss. You will respect me. But even now, he doesn't understand that, and for many a year, he won't understand that we are, he is to honor his father and his mother. But God uses this, this picture of a child and a father to say that if you know that this is what children are to do, that, that children are to honor their father and mother, then why do you not respect your heavenly father. If it is an inclination of your heart as an Israelite to to fulfill this fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, you should also follow follow me as your father. I mean, just think of the comparison there. If God is is a perfect God, if God is a patient God, the characteristics that he has are far greater than any of our earthly fathers. Consider that with his omniscience. God, being completely all-knowing, has far superior knowledge than any one of our dads. If you look at God's eternity, we understand that He has far more experience than any one of our fathers has ever experienced over the course of His life. From God's love, we can understand that our Father, our Heavenly Father, is far more patient with us than any of our fathers were with us as children or as teenagers or as adults. God holds out this superiority as a father, as a picture that he should be worshipped. And so he says, where is mine honor? He doesn't simply stop with the picture of a father, as you see there in verse 6. He also describes his superiority as a master. A servant honors his master. And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you? Most of us enjoy honoring our fathers, but not as many of us enjoy honoring our bosses or our masters. Yet we know it's a command from Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that a servant is to honor his master. So God says, if you honor your boss, honor me who am over you in a far greater way than your boss. It's at at this point in the battle that things really begin to heat up. He he says, I'm your father and you should respect me. And I'm your boss and you should respect me. But then listen to what Israel says at the end of verse 6. He says, Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, What? Wherein have we despised thy name? Here the nation of Israel has the audacity to respond back to God when he's upheld his superiority as a father and as a master to return and say, how did we do it? How did we actually despise your name? So God outlines it for them in verse 7. He says, you offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? He says again, in that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible. Here we have God himself who should be honored and worshipped by all people of the world and goes to his disobedient people 
tells them the basis upon which they should actually perform their worship. And they respond to him with lackluster faith. They simply say, how have we actually worshipped wrong? Prove it to us. And God responds to them with proof. They essentially say, what else do you want? But here you begin to realize that God wants their hearts. They had simply performed all these ritualistic things. They put bread upon the altar, but it was polluted. They had actually performed these rituals, but had polluted the table upon which this bread was. And God says, forget the bread. I want your heart. I want you to perform these rituals, this worship, in a way in which I have actually instructed you to do it. For then you would actually be obeying what I have told you. Do we have a regard for God's superiority as high as God has for His own superiority? When we begin to think of our own worship, we begin to realize that that we come to services and we sing songs forgetting entire lines, forgetting entire stanzas, forgetting entire songs, not even thinking of the words. They go right out of our mouth without even thinking of them one time. We sit down with our families and we pray the same prayer we've always prayed over and again, thanking for the food that we have before us. And we do not even begin to think that God desires our hearts in that moment. And so He gives us one more picture to describe his superiority now as a ruler. Look at verse 8. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? You see, though, all of us may not know our Father at this time, or all of us may not be employed and have a boss, every one of us has some ruler over us, some governor who is watching over us. And God says, if you want to continue having worship in this way, go to your governor and see if he would accept this kind of offering. Essentially, he's saying, during tax season, decide to only pay one-fifth of the government and see if that's okay. Which one of us, over the next month or two, would decide to do that and think we could completely get away with it? But we can come time and time again to public worship or worship in our own private home and begin to think that we can get away with a heart that is not completely ablaze with the worship of God, with a heart that is not having as high of a superiority, a regard for the God's superiority as God has for Himself. He begins to say, that if you do not regard me as high as I should be, do not worship at all. Begin to realize that we ourselves are not as zealous for God's worship as we should be. We begin to see ourselves here within the pages of Scripture as being just like the people of Israel. But, But as if the battle did not stop here, Malachi continues to press on, Instead, not only does God have a regard for superiority, but he also has a yearning for his own purity. In verses 9 and 10, we begin to see the purity of God that is upheld here before the people of Israel. It is a truth all throughout Scripture that God has a high regard 
for his purity. There, there are commands all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament trying to, to hem in God's purity so that nothing of it can be marred by our own sinfulness. But here the Israelites had blemished God's character in front of a younger generation. God had so many stipulations to uplift his holiness before the people. There were certain times, there were certain seasons in which the people of Israel could enter into the Holy of Holies. There were certain people that could even go further into God's holiness. One day a year, there was a day of atonement that would cleanse the tabernacle and the temple so that any sin that was not known of would be cleansed so that God's holiness would not be marred. God had a high regard for His purity And here we begin to see that the impure sacrifices of these Israelites had contaminated the temple like a garbage dump. Instead of offering what they should be offering, pure and perfect sacrifices before the Lord, they had offered blind and lame and sick animals. God has a yearning for His purity that also brings His wrath. And so God here tells us through Malachi that distorted worship is forgetful of God's kindness. In verse 9, we begin to, to read this. And if you, as you read through it with me, if you're anything like me, the first time I read through it, it seemed a little out of place. A, a way to read this verse is to understand that it's, it's actually God speaking in the place of, of a third person in this story. We have God speaking to the nation of Israel. But in verse 9, he plays the role of a third party. Kind of like another Jew that's on the side and speaking to them, but he's pretty sarcastic in the way he says it. Imagine God and this third party person saying this. And now I pray you, he's saying to the people of Israel, and now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Here God, through this person, begins to to prod them and say, do you you really think that God is going to, to... believe you and what you're saying? Do you you think that God is going to be on your side when you offer these kinds of things? So here we begin to realize that the distorted worship is forgetful of God's kindness. God here, playing the role of this third-party Jew, says that no matter what kind of lip we give to God, God in all His purity will not sit quietly. He, He holds His purity so far up that he goes to these people and says, do you really think that God, that God in his purity would uphold what what you are giving to them? And so he begins to say that non-existent worship is even better than distorted worship. Verse 10, he says, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Or in other words, can I find one person here to go and shut the doors of that temple? Those doors need to be closed. Malachi says from God. Will there be just one person who will stand up and close the doors of my temple? God has such a regard for his purity that he wants nothing else of this worship, simply close the doors. Does that remind you of anyone? That reminds me of Jesus Christ himself, who, when being in the temple and realizing all the things that are going on in worship in the first century Judaism, beginning to see all the things that are so distorted. He is the one who looks upon the people of Israel and says to them, My house, the Lord says, is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. 
And Jesus Christ, upholding the purity of God, goes and overturns the tables of the tax collectors, overturns the tables of the vendors, and said, this is not enough. No more worship should happen if you're going to worship God in this way. As we look at this passage in Malachi chapter 1, we see that no one answered this call. God asks for one person to stand up, and no one answers it. But Jesus Christ, as our supreme sacrifice, as the only one who actually obeys in every situation, is put in a situation just like this and responds obediently. He stops the worship at the temple and saying enough is enough. You see here, our Savior, Jesus Christ, can be our sacrifice because in every situation in which He is placed, He upholds God's purity. Each one of us, having been put in that same situation amongst hundreds of people, amongst hundreds of people at the temple coming to do the worship the way they want it to do, which one of us would have stood up and upheld God's purity? And it's for that reason that we realize that none of us measures to the standard of the holiness of God. Not only do we not uphold His holiness as far as we should, we don't even do it before people, let alone God. And so we trust in the one who upheld God's purity above the masses. We trust in the one who stopped the worship because the worship was not done according to truth. God will not accept anything short of perfection and says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. We've seen here that the first motivation, the first truth upon which we should base our worship is that God has a high regard for his superiority. But having stated that to us, he now tells us that God has a yearning for his purity, his holiness. Everything about him should be held in perfection before us. But that doesn't even compare to the third motivation for our worship that we are supposed to base upon this evening. Lastly, in verses 11 on through verse 12, he tells us that God has a desire for his glory. He says in verse 11, for from the rising of the sun... Even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the nations. And in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say, the table of the Lord is polluted. And the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. It is a foundational, but but often forgotten truth of Scripture that God is God-centered. We often don't think in these terms, but that really is the focus of Scripture, that God has His eyes centered upon Himself. The focus is on God and not man. This isn't pride. We, we think of ourselves and we think about what we center ourselves on. If any one of us say that we're man-centered, we realize that's off. When we think about God, God is not man-centered, but is in reality centered upon his own self. And this is not pride, for God is not man. In fact, throughout Scripture, we're told over and over again that God sees himself as the center of everything. 
Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48. And we begin to, to just see throughout Scripture how God describes himself as the one who should be supremely desired above all other things. In Isaiah chapter 48, here God talks to the nation of Israel again regarding how he relates to them. Regarding his anger against them. In verse 9 of chapter 48, the Lord says this, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. Scroll down to verse 11. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory to another? Here the people of Israel deserve punishment, and God says that I'm going to defer my punishment against you so that you are great amongst the nations? No, so that my name will not be profaned amongst the nations. In verse 11, he says it twice. It's for mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. God is centered upon himself. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Beginning in Ezekiel chapter 36 and and verse 22, we begin to see the Lord describing this way concerning himself. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, he speaks to the nation of Israel and saying what he is going to do positively for them. But it's for his name's sake alone. Before he defers his anger, here he gives to them abundant blessings because of his name. In verse 22, he says, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name. That is, to set it apart. I will set apart my great name, which is profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. As the people of Israel will be shown to be vindicated amongst all the nations, God does this so that He will be glorified, not the nation of Israel. We think of this with regard to our own salvation. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. All of our salvation is for the praise of the glory of His name. Why did God save us? Why did God desire to come and redeem His people? He came to do it so that He might receive the attention, so that He might receive the praise and the glory and the honor that should be given to Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, we see this with regard to predestination. He says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Why is it that we are predestinated and adopted by Jesus Christ? It's so that each one of us who have received this gracious gift might be able to praise God Himself. So that everyone around us who, who sees this gift that we have of adoption could be able to praise God for the glory that has happened within us. This is true with regard to our spiritual inheritance. Look at verse 11. 
in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. How is it that we receive this spiritual inheritance? Why is it that any one of us have this blessing in Jesus Christ? It's because it's to the praise of the glory of His name. He gives us this blessing so that He might receive the honor. Look at verse 13 with regard to how we are sealed by the Spirit. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Here we are sealed by the Spirit until that day of redemption, that whole process of change within us, is so that God could receive the praise and the glory. God is not an egotistical God. God is not a God that upholds Himself in the way that we uphold ourselves. But it is true throughout all of Scripture That everything that God does, He does it for His glory. In fact, if He didn't do it, He would not be God. He has a a perfect character and a perfect self-focused desire that coincide perfectly. If He did not do this, what kind of a God would we praise? God desires that everything that these Israelites do in Malachi chapter 1 be centered upon His worship. And the point is that it entails a categorical response from all the peoples. And so in verse 11 from Malachi chapter 1, he begins to tell them that he will receive his praise from all the peoples. So we realize that that God is not a proud God. We, We forget the radical nature of his demand. Here's Israel being selected out by God and saying, I'm going to give you praise because of me and you. But if you're not going to give me the praise that I deserve, I will get praise from the rest of the nations. And so from verse 11, he says, from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, or from as far as you can see to the east, as far as you can see to the west, I will receive my praise. God had uniquely chosen these people so that in them they might see the glory of God. But instead, he says, my glory My honor will be given to me, so that whether you do it or not, I will receive it. You see, God wants His glory. God wants His glory, and He will get it with or without us. This really hurts our pride, if you think about it. It begins to really get at the core of what we think we're all about. God says the same in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. So we begin to realize this. We begin to realize that that God does not need me. That God does not need Grace Baptist Church. That God does not need any other church that we're familiar with to receive His glory. God will get His glory. We are simply vessels who have the privilege, the privilege to be able to give the God of this universe the glory that is due to His name. 
So as he speaks to the nation of Israel, we begin to realize that we ourselves have a place of importance in this, a place of opportunity to give and praise. But he says here that as far as you can see from the east to the west, I will get my glory. As an Israelite would read this passage the first time through, they begin to, to question what exactly does this mean? Is it the right worship, worship that is according to truth for the Old Testament, was worship that was centered where? In one location, at the temple in Jerusalem. And here he is saying that as, from as far east to as far west as you can see, incense will be offered to his name. An Israelite would say, how could this be right worship? I understand we're offering blind and lame sacrifices, but how could worship outside of Jerusalem be right worship? I think there are a number of interpretations that people have given here that might help us resolve this problem. Some see the, the call that we are to worship in Romans chapter 12 as, as fulfillment of this. That we, in, in our offering and sacrifices to the Lord, as when we gather together here in worship on Sundays or, or throughout the week, that that is fulfillment of this. I think it would be better to take it very, very literally here and to realize that in the future, we are told in Ezekiel 40-48, through 48, that in the future, in the millennium, all throughout the world, offerings will be offered to the Lord. All of us Gentiles who have been able to experience salvation will at that time be able to offer offerings to the Lord. So here again, the nation of Israel gets reminded that it's not simply about them. It's about God. And He will receive His honor. God receives His glory, I think, through the global accumulation of worshipers. After Christ came here to earth and shed His blood for us, He opened the doors. The, the, the table, the, the curtain was rent so that the table there would be offered to all. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Gospel is now proclaimed throughout the nations and God receives His glory through many people coming to worship Him alone. In fact, this is the goal of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. A famous quote from a, a missiologist said this very thing, Worship is ultimate, ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. We go to northwest Spain, we go to Asia, we go to Africa, we go to South America, we go to other parts of our continent, not because of us, and not simply so that we can have others join our cause, but because we want others to join us in the worship of God. The whole point is worship. One day, missions will cease, but worship will always exist through eternity. It's for this reason, when we go to Spain... We do not simply want to have attenders or converts. We want worshipers alongside of us. This gets to the heart of the matter, that the people that we want to see actually bear fruit in Spain are people that have this white-hot enjoyment of God as we do ourselves. We arrive in Spain and realize that people are completely against God and people do not want to hear this message we share this message gladly. We share this message with confidence, knowing that one day 
they will begin to see God's glory as we see it ourselves. The question to ask ourselves from this, this passage, is my intensity of worship as intense as God's desire for his glory? We all have a desire for missions around the world, but we begin to ask ourselves, do we desire his, his worship through missions and through our own worship to be done in the right way, in a way that mirrors God's own desire for his glory? If God's own desire is not the basis of our worship, then we run the risk of a half-hearted worship like Israel. We'll do it when we have time. We'll do it when we get around to it. We'll remember it when we think about it during a song on Sunday morning. But if we would have the heart of Malachi from God here, we would have this passion that God's supremacy and His holiness and His own glory be held high elevated above all other things in our minds. We will encourage one another in this task. We will encourage one another that we should actually uphold His glory above all other things that we could glory. This is a battle that is between us and God. Though so often we think of, of worship as a battle between God's people, what is the right way should we should worship? What instruments should we use? What should we sing about? What should we do when we actually come here? But in reality, the heart of the matter that God tells us here is our own sinful hearts that do not uphold and do not exalt His glory to the position that it should. The externals certainly matter, but here God says, look at your heart. For at the heart of the matter, you begin to realize that you do not worship me as we should. What a glorious thing it is that we have a Savior who did this and modeled this for us. Who when here on earth stopped the wrong worship and throughout his entire life, live the life of worship dependence upon God through the Spirit. Let us model our Lord Jesus Christ, for His sacrifice for our sins has changed us radically. We can model our Lord because we trust in Him alone to save us from this kind of sinning that we commit daily. Trust in His sacrifice alone so that you may worship God as He should be worshipped. Let's pray towards that end. Our Father, we exalt your name this evening. We, we exalt your glorious name that desires to be exalted amongst all the nations. And we realize our smallness this evening, Father. We realize how small we are in comparison to your grandeur. We realize, Lord, that, that you created us when we did not need to be created so that you might receive the honor and praise and glory. So for those of us who this evening enjoy the blessing of salvation, who enjoy redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, that each one of us here might join you in your praise and honor and glory. And Father, I pray that as we begin to realize this amazing opportunity we have, may you give us also the burning desire to see others around us also be worshipers. Oh, Father, allow hundreds and thousands and millions of people around the world to join us in the incredible opportunity and privilege to worship you alone. You deserve it. You own it and you need it. And so, Father, we desire to give it to you alone this evening. 
In Christ's name I pray. Amen.